Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hello and welcome to History Rage, the new podcast where we invite members of the historical community to get angry, to get a few things off their chest. My name is Paul Bavel, and I'm here with my good friend and co-host, Kyle Glover. Hello. And this week, we're welcoming local historian, engagement fellow for the British Association of Local History, and creator of the Yorkshire's Hidden History YouTube channel. This week, we welcome Catherine Waugh. Hello, and welcome to the show. Hello. So, before we dive in on what annoys the hell out of you, Catherine, and I've seen some of your videos, there's quite a lot. Do tell us a little bit about yourself and our listeners about your channel and the work that you do for engaging local history. Well, I run the YouTube channel Yorkshire's Hidden History, as you've heard, which has grown to become, if I do say so myself, the biggest and most popular YouTube channel about Yorkshire history. I tend to focus on topics which are hidden, hence the name, because I'm frankly sick and tired of York Minster and the Battle of Towton getting all the attention. I also write. I've got a book coming out next year about Yorkshire folklore, customs and traditions. And I'm in the process of researching another one about early medieval religious figures in Yorkshire. And I'm also the engagement fellow for the British Association of Local History, which basically means that I'm responsible for engaging a wider and more diverse audience and thinking of ways that we can really engage with the local and family history community. Excellent. Well, I know you're going to be itching to get this off your chest, Catherine. So let's kick off with what do you wish people would just stop believing? Go. So there's two things, really. First, that the Wars of the Roses were all about Yorkshire and Lancashire. And second, <laughs> that Yorkshire was a centre of the Wars of the Roses, which we all seem to believe for some reason, born out of Yorkshire exceptionalism and the belief that the entire universe revolves around us. Oh, you're suggesting it doesn't? Oh, heresy, I know. <laughs> so, first, there is this idea that the Wars of the Roses were between Yorkshire and Lancashire, and one of the reasons why this makes me so irate is because it's given rise to this really cringeworthy rivalry. Like, if there's any sporting event tangentially related to Yorkshire and Lancashire, it'll be dubbed the Roses match. And the trouble is, even though a lot of people are intellectually aware that the conflict wasn't actually between the two, they'll still carry on with it as though they want to believe it. It's really bizarre. I've spoken to people who are talking about the uh, match between Leeds and Manchester United it. Manchester United calling it the Roses rivalry and when I explained that it wasn't actually between them they go well I know but it's still cool okay as though they don't want to act 
actually part with the idea. It's bizarre. I'm, I'm going to explain a little later on in more detail why the conflict wasn't a geographical one, but the short answer is that it was a dynastic dispute involving people spread out across the country allied to either side. A way of thinking of it is like, George VI was a Duke of York. His brother, Edward VIII, was a Prince of Wales. Are we going to act like their falling out over the abdication was an argument between Yorkshire and Wales? Of course not. Good point. That is so perfect. one of the examples I can give. That's, oh, a, that's a perfect example, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and one of the ironic facts is that most of the places and people we associate with either county had little to do with it. So the Clifford family, for example, who are on the Lancastrian side, were based at Skipton Castle in Yorkshire for hundreds of years. And sure, Richard III spent a few years living in Wensleydale as a child whilst under the care of a relative, Warwick the Kingmaker, I believe, but he was neither born in Yorkshire nor spent much of his reign actually in Yorkshire. So it's a little bit silly to claim him as a Yorkshire king, which some, the Yorkshire Museum, are so wont to do. Okay, second thing. Yorkshire people seem to believe that the Wars of the Roses were all about us, that Yorkshire was the centre of it. But the reality is, and this applies again to my first point, that the Wars of the Roses were a national conflict which involved and affected everyone. I mean, come on, the Tudors were Welsh. Henry Tudor rode into battle with a red dragon on his flag. The House of Lancaster was supported by many Scottish nobles. And if you look at a map of the most important battles, the vast majority are in the Midlands and the South. Yeah. There's like mm-hmm. two important ones in Yorkshire, okay? Wakefield and Towton. That's it, let's be honest. So the conflict was a national one, and arguably other counties played just as, if not more, an important role in it than Yorkshire. So it's not all about us, okay? Whoa. Yeah. That was good. That Thanks. was raging. Yeah. Okay, Kyle, yeah. kick in. First question, well, then. So you've, you've kind of already answered the question, but when you say it was a dynastic struggle between the members of the royal family. Could you expand on that a little bit more? Sure. So the way I've written it out is because it's all very complicated. Mm -hmm. It was a big dynastical fight over who should get the throne. It was between two wings of a family known as a Plantagenet who had ruled for a long time and split into two branches known as the House of York and the House of Lancaster. Importantly, most of the main characters descended from the same king, Edward III, so it was basically the equivalent of when the extended family has a punch-up at a reception somewhere. <laughs> you know, that's the best way to think of it. That is absolutely yeah. the best way to yeah. think of the Wars of the Roses. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, I'm going to skip over a lot of bits and anger all the medievalists, but basically, in 1400, the Yorkist king Richard II was deposed by the Lancastrian Henry Bolingbroke, who became Henry IV. Now, he and his son, Henry V, had a rather shaky claim on the throne as a result of this, and so when Henry V's son, Henry VI, I know there's a lot of Henrys, try keep up, began to really irritate everyone because of his poor rule, which was down to a lot of reasons, which I can't go into because it's complicated. Richard of York, not the one who did battle in vain, but one who actually had a better claim to the throne than he did, 
fought Henry VI at the First Battle of St Albans in 1455. So I've skipped over a lot of stuff, but that's the gist of it. That uh, was that, that was kind of the precursor. The yeah, kind that of trailer. was. I've the, always marked the Wars of the Roses as kind of First St Albans is really where it kicks off. Yeah, that's the yeah. Uh, consensus. Yeah. Um, given the vast difference between the myth and the reality, you know, and that we you've actually spoken to, you know people observers historians academics that'll still go along with this you know why why can we not shift this idea that it's got anything to do with two geographical counties at all particularly one of which was only had two battles in it and the other one i, I can't even find reference that it touched it at all yeah so i think one of the main things i've i've seen is because of the roses thing now, first of all, the term Wars of the Roses is an incredibly recent invention, dating from around the 18th or 19th century. It's a convenient, easy, slightly romantic label for it. It makes sense. There's a white rose in the House of York and a red rose in the House of Lancaster. However, the problem arises when you realise that they were just two of many symbols used throughout the conflict. So, as I mentioned before, Henry Tudor had a red dragon. Richard III had a white boar. Edward IV would alternate between a white or yellow lion and a white rose with bits of the sun sticking out of it. So, granted, small white and red roses were used in the banners quite frequently, and if you Google them, you'll see them, but what I'm getting at is that there was no unified usage of just the rose as a symbol of each side in the conflict, in the same way that the RAF would use roundels and the Luftwaffe would use a cross, if that makes sense. Everyone had their own different symbol. And if you allow me to go off on a tangent briefly, so... Yes, the White Rose does belong to the House of York, but the actual significance of the White Rose to Yorkshire does not even begin to start until allegedly the Battle of Minden in 1759. As the story goes, soldiers of the Yorkshire Regiment picked White Roses and wore them, and thus the White Rose became a Yorkshire thing. However... All soldiers that day wore various roses. The Scottish regiments and the artillery wore red roses, which is confusing as the red rose is obviously the symbol of the House of Lancaster. The Anglian and Fusilier regiments wore red and yellow roses. So really, when you look at it, it wasn't a particularly special event because all the soldiers were wearing roses, either white or red ones. But the event has entered mythology as being the birth of the Yorkshire White Rose. And what I find interesting and unusual is that for a long time the White Rose was a Jacobite symbol. So if you're walking around in 1745 with a White Rose, people aren't thinking that you're supporting the House of York, they're thinking that you're a Jacobite. And yet somehow along the way, we've totally forgotten that. It's totally lost that meaning and instead Yorkshire has appropriated that symbol so to speak so what i'm trying to get at is basically we've had this incredibly reductionist view even of the symbols used in the conflict which reduces it to oh the yorkshire white rose and the lancashire red rose and it you know it's easy to assume and to make that connection and when you add to that the construction of this rivalry does it just come down to the war of the red dragon and the white boar doesn't sound quite as cool and yeah. dramatic. Is that literally it? 
I think that's partly, you know, Wars of the Roses is a very, it's a very nice label, much in the same way that kind of Wars of the Three Kingdoms is an alternative name for the Civil Wars. Mm. But I think it was Ivanhoe who really popularised the term Wars of the Roses. But but yeah, as as I was saying, you know, when you add the construction of the rivalry, because all rivalries are socially constructed, we just decide that we've got to hate this other group because that's what we've always done. The idea becomes appealing. So, I mean, personally, I think the main reason for the longevity of this myth is because we keep wanting to play into a Yorkshire and Lancashire rivalry. And each time that we say, oh, the Lancashire-Yorkshire cricket match, it's the Roses match. We're, we're continuing that and we're playing in it and we shouldn't. I have to say, I mean, I first looked at the Wars of the Roses at school when I was 12. And I am the only person on this podcast that was alive when I was 12. It is some considerable time ago. and But yeah, that, that myth and that thought was still there. And I'd never come across this before. So you can imagine my disappointment when it turned out that the Wars of the Roses wasn't anything to do with Yorkshire or Lancashire mm. at all. Um, but the actual reality was kind of just much more interesting because you've just got, you've got betrayals, you've got alliances, you've got, you've got secret murders, you've got phenomenal, and they are phenomenal battles. You know, the, I think, I think we're doing the Wars of the Roses down by clinging to this myth somewhat. Exactly. I mean, this, the storylines, if I can, can like go for the tangent slightly, the storylines which just emerged on Wars of the Roses are, are brilliant, like you couldn't write it. I think one of my favourite is the Clifford family who I mentioned earlier. So John Clifford, and I might totally bungle this because it's been a while since I've, I've <laughs> been researching no, it, fine. but his father was killed at the Battle of Albans, the first one in 1455. So at the Battle of Wakefield, or this is what Shakespeare says anyway, he slaughtered this young child of the Yorkists who was only a teenager at the time in revenge. I think you're referring to, yeah, referring to executing the Earl of Rutland. Yeah, that's the one. Yeah. And put him in the river. If you stand yep. on the bridge at Wakefield with the Chantry Chapel, you can see where it happened. Wow. Nice. Next trip to Yorkshire, we're going to Wakefield. <laughs> I'll, t- I'll take you to Sandal Castle. You can go and see the uh, the memorial to uh, to the Duke of York, which is plastered on the side of a school. Oh, goody. Uh, and has, has got bloody roses carved around the memorial. <laughs> now, not to make a big thing of this, because you've already said it's complicated, but Henry VI, good king, bad king? What do you reckon? I'm sure you're working well, out if at all you possible. Know, to be honest, yeah, I mean... To be honest with you, it's not something that I've really looked at a lot. So part of me doesn't feel knowledgeable enough to answer. But what I will say is Henry VI, okay, is the son of Henry V, who's this, you know, critically acclaimed king. He's just done these brilliant conquests and victories in France. How is he going to live up to that? You add in his mental condition and all the other stuff going on, I think he faced more pressure than a lot of other kings so Mm. i think i have a lot of sympathy for him i think he was in a tremendously difficult situation but you know people have written entire books on each of them so i i don't feel quite qualified to comment on them he also didn't have any brothers so he's the only one he can't be a great warrior king Mm. so if he dies that's it that's the end of the line so they have to keep him safe he can't be a warrior like exactly 
not to forget as well that, you know, Plantagenets have never been particularly good at infant kings surrounded by advisors. <laughs> yeah. Ever. People refer to the Wars of the Roses as being this game changer of history. Um, it ushers in the Tudor age. Um, as you said, it's a dynastic struggle. Now, I suppose the, really the question that we're looking for is, is, is this actually, a, you know, a, an English civil war that's going to change the fabric of the country? Or is this just a glorified punch up with the, between the royal family where, where the passing populace ends up getting conscripted into it? I mean, by the end of it, would the man in the street, the man in the farm, the man in the church have seen anything different about the country at all? You know, I, th- I think that's a really good question. I think, you know, I think it's easy to think that it was just a changing of the guard, that it was just another, you know, squabble amongst the nobility. But I think it really did shake things up. If you think of the, pl- the Plantagenets, they're this long-running tree. I mean, they've been going for, at the time, you know, what hundreds of years and they've just totally destroyed each other in a bloody bitter conflict full of revenge and it, it's you know it's incredibly bloodthirsty and they're replaced now by this welsh noble family and i i think there's something about that which is just you know it's like the end of an era there is a reason why when we study the medieval period and yes all designations of time period are arbitrary decisions by historians but there is a reason why when we look at the medieval period we stop generally at 1485 and say okay now it's the Tudors you know there is a sense that this drew a line somewhere and again I can't comment on the specifics in terms of how it affected ordinary people it's just something I've not researched enough but I think that there was just something so monumental about it that it's pretty silly to think it didn't have any effect yeah i mean there's a lot of kind of laws and legislations that henry the seventh brings in there's certainly a lot of there's certainly a lot of financial stuff to try and you know put back the money that either a the plantagenets cost the country or b the woodvilles just ran away with but I've just, I've always just wondered uh, as well that uh, since you usher, you've got this bloodthirsty, and they are an absolutely they're known as England's bloodiest dynasty for a damn good reason. You know, the Plantagenets basically spent the best part of about four hundred years attempting to destroy the entire family from within. By fourteen eighty five, they get a little bit of outside help from Henry Tudor, but finally succeed in pretty much wiping the entire power base out. Um, would you say going forward, actually, that the Tudors are any sort of improvement given the people that they bring us? Um, well, improvement, no, but I'd say they definitely add a unique and interesting angle in terms uh, of the fact that the Reformation happened. And so it's no longer just killing each other over power, it's now killing each other over whether you're a Catholic or a Protestant. So improvement, definitely not. They did some good things, but I think they just opened up a whole other kettle of fish. <laughs> yeah, it's almost like we can go through this sort of almost 600-year history where we just can't have any sort of decent monarch. <laughs> um, if there's one thing I would probably say that the Civil War did it was that was good was probably create that constitutional monarchy where the monarch has to take the back seat mm. because it's been a lot more peaceful since then. Definitely. Not entirely peaceful, but... Yeah, maybe maybe the Wars of the Roses starts that whole process. Who knows? Mm. 
Well, you've referred to in your excellent video on Yorkshire myths that the Wars of the Roses have nothing to do with um, Yorkshire. And the far more important period in Yorkshire history would be the English Civil War. Um, now, Yorkshire's got some fairly strong turning points in the Wars of the Roses. I mean, we've got we've got the Battle of Wakefield, which saw the end of Richard, Duke of York. We've got the Battle of Towton, which you're sick of, but it is the longest and bloodiest battle fought on English soil. Um, and, of course, Pontefract Castle could be the start of the problem with the alleged murder of Richard II. So so what is it then about about the English Civil War in Yorkshire that, that where it should take the forefront? Yeah, I mean, I think if you allow me a bit of facetiousness here, so, okay, we've got, it. like, two important battles in the Wars of the Roses, and, okay, like, Richard II might have been killed there. So what? You know, yes, they're important <laughs> events, but that doesn't make Yorkshire the centre of the known universe in terms of the Wars of the Roses. It just means that it, it shared some important events along with other places. And this, you know, this is something I really, really feel passionate about because, by contrast, when you look at the civil wars, you see Yorkshire acting almost as the crucible in which the outcome was decided. So you've got major battles like Marston Moor, Adwalton, the sieges of York and Hull, but you've got smaller ones as well, which nonetheless contribute to the shifting scales of power in the period, like Leeds, Bradford, Tadcaster, Selby. You know, I may be so bold as to say that it's a turn of events in Yorkshire which essentially dictated what was happening elsewhere. It was York, which was a temporary capital of the king, when he moved his court there. You know, that there's like so much is happening here. You've got more battles, far more battles, in fact. You've got far more interesting events. You've got far more important moments. And yet we kind of don't recognise that. Yeah, so, I mean, some of those defining moments that you mentioned, you mentioned like Leeds and Bradford and Tadcaster yeah. and Selby. I mean, how have they, how how did they turn the tide of the Civil War? Yeah, so I think the best way of thinking about it is the Civil Wars in Yorkshire, it's a massive game of Tom and Jerry between two commanders. You've got the parliamentarian Sir Thomas Fairfax and the royalist uh, William Cavendish. And yes, to a certain extent, you've got lots and lots of small battles which individually and as significant as others, but combined, because they were, because this is the thing to realise, they were constantly winning and losing against each other, taking and retaking towns. It was this huge game of, like, 32-dimensional chess, you know, and it sort of, it works on such a small level. I'm probably not making myself very clear, but what I'm trying to say is, if you look at the battle, like, Marston Moor, for example, it yeah. was events which were happening in a tiny skirmish in Tadcaster, for example, which would influence where someone was travelling or what town you would take next. So in like a domino effect, it all helped towards the turning tide of the war. And obviously, Marston Moor was kind of the defining battle in the north, really. It was just this absolutely crushing defeat. So that's the way I like to think of it. You know, yes, there's lots and lots of battles which in themselves probably aren't that significant but when you put them in the wider picture without them it would have been a totally different story so and 17th century is not my period of expertise um, at all i kind of take a jump from the wars of the roses to like the early 19th century and miss out broadly everything in between 
Um, but if I, if memory serves me correctly, if you do have all these small scales skirmishes and sieges, which take little bits away from particularly the, the royalist side up until the point where you hit Marston Moor. And then by Marston Moor, the royalists have got absolutely nothing left. It's utterly crushing. And that pretty much spells the end of the royalist campaign, as, mm. as far as I'm aware. Is it, I mean, am I right there? Yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah, you, Yorkshire, it doesn't end the Wars of the Roses, but it effectively ends the English Civil War, or at least one of the three English Civil Wars that, that formed that period. Yeah, basically. And, and just another thing I remembered is... Um, at Marston Moor, the Scottish Covenanter army was hugely important. And so it was kind of, the parliamentarians had got an alliance with them and then they'd marched to Marston Moor, did this battle. And that was, again, one of the hugely important events. It, it was something which, which, which decided the kingdom, basically, if I remember correctly, in terms of kind of the, the kingdom of Scotland. And we should, we should really get behind this campaign to have the Civil War more recognised in... Uh, in Yorkshire yes you know when was the last time that we saw an actual kind of event about the civil war anywhere in Yorkshire they don't even reenact Marston Moor anymore which depending on your point of view might be a good thing (laughs) okay so um, between your videos and your role as engagement fellow with the association of local history um, you're clearly quite passionate about local history and similar topics Um, why should other people be as interested as you so, for me, the appeal of local history is twofold. So, for one, it's stuff which often gets ignored in mainstream histories. You know, when you're watching TV, okay, you get Lucy Worsley's 28th documentary about Hampton Court Palace and the Tudors. You get Michael Portillo's 37th Great Railway Journey. It's just the same stuff regurgitated. Oh, and if I might actually have a bit of a insider knowledge so i i talked briefly to someone who was involved in in factual program making and he said that when you go to a big production company you are literally given a list of people they want you to make uh programs about and it's it's churchill tutankhamun you know things like that there is no room Mm. in the mainstream histories for small niche interesting topics particularly local history and two there's something deeply enjoyable about finding out things about where you live or where you're from. So there's that sense of being able to relate to things like, oh, I've been there. I've seen whatever building they're talking about. And if you're walking through a town or city, you get a real sense of, wow, this happened here. I'm surrounded by history. So that's what I think is great about it and why I'm so passionate about making a platform for it. And is the job in terms of the engagement fellowship is you mentioned that it's to get a more kind of diverse range of uh, of historians in the world. I mean, what sort of things um, are, you, are you and the association looking at doing to bring that about? Yeah. So, I mean, just on a personal level, personally, I, I have a big mission in democratizing history because as a you know, quote-unquote amateur historian who comes from a non-conventional background. I mean, I've got a degree in peace studies. I don't have a history degree. I faced a... (laughs) Catherine, I don't even have a history GCSE, so (laughs) I was told I would fail it. You you are not talking to academics here. But that's the thing, is that I faced a lot of, uh, you know, snobbery and uh, bias because I'm not an academic. And I think that's really deep-seated in, in the historian community. And I am passionate about democratising it so that actually anyone, as long as they've got the skills, 
can participate and you know me and the the BALH we kind of share those similar values we want everyone to be able to participate fully you don't need to be a part of an exclusive club of history graduates or doctors or professors to get involved and we want to involve everyone as well you know we want to make sure that we're reaching as many communities as possible um, because there's always something interesting for them to learn and to relate to and their their input and experience is always valued and appreciated excellent yeah. excellent you can, i don't think that could have been play could have been put better myself i've um, I just if i may i'll just tell you something about kind of academics that kind of crossed my mind recently my uh, my wife yeah, she'll forgive me but she doesn't listen to the podcast anyway but <laughs> she um um she's currently doing a masters in victorian studies and one of the elements of feedback that she got from from one of the essays was, um, and I quote, um, you write like a journalist, your problem is you write something that somebody would enjoy reading. <laughs> and that entirely put me off academia for life. Oh, dear. Yeah. Well, thank you very much, Catherine. I mean, that's given both of us several things to think about, oh. even in an area that we hold quite some interest in. Yeah. Thank you. I've, I've really enjoyed it. Excellent. Yeah, yeah we'll, uh, we'll we'll get you back a little later on in uh, next year, if again, probably about series three, because uh, I'm <laughs> sure you've got plenty more things that you can rant about. Yeah, definitely. Wonderful. Well, if you would like to hear more from Catherine, then you can subscribe to her YouTube channel, Yorkshire's Hidden History, and you can follow her on Twitter at Hidden Yorkshire. And we'll have links to all those in the show notes. Also, Keep an eye out for a book on Yorkshire folklore and customs, and that's due to be released at spring next year. So once again, Catherine, thanks very much for coming on the show. Uh, it's been it's been a pleasure. Thank you. You're welcome. Ladies and gentlemen, I hope you've enjoyed this episode. You can follow us on Twitter. I am at Paul Bavel. And I'm at Kyle G History. And you can leave comments, thoughts, and please send your own history rages using the hashtag history rage if you've enjoyed our work then please subscribe leave us a review on itunes google amazon or wherever you get your podcasts so thanks very much for listening and bye-bye bye